0: This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from Indian folklore about love, marriage, and murder, and why the last people you want to meet on the street are your husband's secret angry wives. The creature this week is a javelin snake who will kill you with kindness or by stabbing you in the neck. This is Myths and Legends, episode 290, Hiss and Makeup. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story comes from Kashmiri folklore, and it's a region that's currently divided among a territory dispute between India, Pakistan, and China. That being said, today's story comes from a collection from the Kashmir Valley, which is part of India, thus the designation at the top of the show. We'll jump in, but it's basically a fairy tale, so there's no history or mythology needed to understand today's story. We'll start up with a man with a plan. A plan... for murder? Sodoram was going to do it. Sodoram was going to kill... His wife. Sodorama and his wife were not doing well in any sense of the word. Economically, they lived in a tumble-down hut with no food. Relationship-wise, well, few healthy relationships have one party plotting murder, so there you go. One day, though, when he was nursing a bruised face after he came home with too little money, he told her he was going on a trip. The king in a nearby city gave away five locks of rupees to the poor every day. He was going to see if he could get his hands on some of those sweet, sweet alms. The wife shrugged. Fine. She wouldn't miss him. The murder plot wasn't even something Sodoram was looking for. It just sort of presented itself. On his way home from begging, he sat down by a cool stream and rested his bag on the ground and went to wash his face off and get a bit to drink when he looked up. And Sodoram froze. There was a snake. A snake was climbing in his bag. He knew it at a glance. It was venomous. He was racking his brain, trying to figure out how he was going to get the snake out of his bag when a smile curled across his face. What if he didn't? What if he cinched the bag and just continued on home? What if his wife was the person who opened the bag? All Sodram had to do was what he would have done anyway. I have a surprise for you Sodorom called out when he returned home and held up the bag the wife said he was weirdly chipper okay she'll bite what's in the bag Sodorom chuckled she wouldn't be the only thing biting what was that nothing just here Sodorom said and handed her the bag but don't peek she should just like jam her hand in there and root around oh but they should go upstairs first The wife should have known something was up and took her to the upstairs room, shut the door behind her, and held it shut while she found out what the surprise was. From outside the door, Sodaram heard a squeal, a cry, and then another cry. But that one wasn't his wife, that was... A baby? Sodaram said, standing in the doorway, unable to process what he was seeing. His wife flew to him, baby in her arms, and she embraced her husband. She loved him. She loved him, and she loved the baby. And so, when you asked where babies come from, that's why I was all like, do you mean regular babies or you? Sodaram said to his seven-year-old son. Nagrai. Nagrai was a little stunned. You just talked about how you were trying to murder mom? Sodoram chuckled. Yeah, you know, little lover's quarrel. She smacked me. I tried to kill her with a snake that turned into a baby. Tale as old as time. We're good now, though. We've been good ever since you came along, little scamp, Sodoram said. Though, this is more of a do-as-I-say-and-not-as-I-do sort of thing. You shouldn't stay with someone who's physically violent. You shouldn't stay with someone who's physically violent. The thing is, though, Nagrai, the son, already knew at least part of the story. Not the abuse-murder attempt part, that was eye-opening. But the other part, about the snake. Dad, where can I find a pure spring in which to bathe? Nagrai asked his father. So I don't thought about it. I mean, if we're talking pure-pure, it doesn't get much better than the princess's bath, I'm assuming. Like, it's the princess, so it has to be, right? Like a kiddie pool full of Fiji water or something. But normal people like us, uh, we'll never see it. It's too heavily guarded. Wait, why? What are the stakes? Nagarai said that he would be defiled if he didn't bathe in a pure spring. The dad said, okay, wait have they never given Nagrai a bath? You know, he really had no idea how to raise kids. There's no book out there called What to Expect When You're Expecting to Kill Your Wife with a Snake, but that snake turns out to be a baby. Nagrai laughed and, happy his dad wasn't asking any follow-up questions, rose. He was going for a walk. Nagrai walked through town until he found the palace wall, walked a bit around the stones, until he was in a shady spot. In an instant, Nagrai was no more a snake slithered along the ground and between the stones of the wall. Negri was able to change back into a boy to bathe, but I guess since he was seven years old, he loved splashing. The princess heard Negri from her room and sent a servant to find out what was going on in her Fiji water bath. When the servant rounded the corner, she saw only a snake slithering away. This happened two more times over the following weeks. On the third, the princess ordered the servant to follow the snake And she did so, to the wall, climbing it. The servant saw the snake turn back into the boy, beautiful boy, the princess, who was also seven, told her father and mother. She had watched Negri herself, and she had fallen in love. She wanted to marry him. The father was not having it, not because they were seven years old, which is what I would have led with, and it wasn't even castus, they were of the same caste. It was just your run-of-the-mill discrimination based on socioeconomic status. Sodoram, the dad, was just some guy. His son was just some younger guy. The king would set up his seven-year-old with like a prince or something. Don't worry about it. But Himal, the princess, wouldn't hear it. She refused to be set up with anyone but Nagrai. And the king eventually relented, calling Sodoram to the court. Yeah, it is a super honor that we're all so excited about. I'm thinking we go 50-50 on the cost of the royal wedding, though, the king said. Sodarom swallowed hard, uh, th- what? Yeah, splitsies. You pay half, I pay half. Uh, just so we can get started planning today, how many gold-armored elephants do you think we're going to need at this wedding? Minimum order is 40, so I'm thinking at least twice that. You are going to get me killed, Sodarom said to Negri when he returned home. Nagrai talked him out of immediately calling the wedding off, changing his name, and leaving town forever. In the years since, let's call it adopting Nagrai, Sodoram's business was doing well. He was rich, but he wasn't golden elephant rich. He also wasn't one for planning ahead. Like yours truly, he opted to stew in anxiety rather than do anything at all to alleviate that anxiety. When the day of the wedding came around, he was still in his pajamas and frantically looking around for like a veggie platter or something. When Negri stopped him, his father shouldn't worry. He would take care of it. He instructed his dad to go to a spring and throw a paper into it. Seeing as the only other option was sitting back and being executed, Sodaram obliged his son. Upon returning to town, he saw the army. At first, he thought a war had started, which, yeah, sieges were difficult and a lot of people would die, but, it would really get him out of a jam. Then, he saw that the army wasn't surrounding the city. Well, only the city. It was surrounding his house. At the center was Negrai, dressed like Sodoram had never seen before, and standing like a king, golden elephants and all. He looked at his father with a smile and thanked the man for delivering the message. It was time to get married. The wedding was beautiful, And the king improved, now that he saw how rich Nagrai was. So, you know, great reasons. Let's say the literal children grew up, and years passed, until they were in their still weird, but not as gross, teen years. Hey, look at all the fun glass I bought, Himal, the princess said. Nagrai looked at the glass. Oh. He slowly swept his hand across the table, until all the glass fell to the floor, shattering. Himal crossed her arms. Rude. Negrai didn't address that. He demanded to know who sold her this glass. Himal went to the window of the palace. The woman stood out in the market every day this week, and oh, there she was. Yeah, she had this whole, like, witch, sorceress vibe thing going on. Negrai swallowed hard when he saw the woman. She didn't look that way the last time he saw her. Or the day that he married her. Himal asked... Who is that woman? Negri chuckled nervously and told his wife that that witch out there, she wasn't actually a witch. She was a snake. And she was his wife. So you came as a snake, transformed into a baby to be raised by Sodorom and his wife, but you're actually way older than that and are currently married? Negri said, yes, but she's a snake. So like, does it even count? It did at least to the snakes. Notice I said snakes, plural. Not only was Negri way older than he appeared when he married his underage wife, not only was he already married, he was married multiple times. Himal was a little tired of getting approached in the street by women who were apparently snakes, who were apparently married to her husband. But one, in particular, gave her pause. One version calls her a sweeper, or a snake disguised as a woman disguised as a sweeper. Princess Himal felt the woman pulling at her garment, begging her. Her husband, Nagrai, has left her. He was a sweeper by caste. The world stopped around the princess. Sweeper. Her husband was a sweeper. Okay, it's weird that you're staying so far away from me, Nagrai said to his wife. As he got up to move closer, she got up to move farther away. Is this about what one of my secret snake wives said? Himal said that the very fact that he had to say that was problematic. But yes, one approached her in the street today. She said that Negri was a member of a lower caste. Negri said, one, that's Castus, so, you know, live with that. Two, he's not. But what does it matter if they're in love? It did matter, though, at least to Himal, the princess she couldn't shake the thought that her husband might be from a lower caste. Remember that he had several secret marriages and was an ageless snake when he married her very young. But the caste thing, that was the first and final nail in the coffin. Himal said that there was a way. Negri looked over at her, a way to... what exactly? A way to prove what caste he was actually in. All he had to do was go to a nearby spring, sit in it, And if he sank, he was of her cast. Negri narrowed his eyes. Where did she hear about this method? The princess said it didn't matter where. She wanted Negri to do it. It was one of my wives, wasn't it? Himal says she couldn't remember exactly where, but now that he mentioned it, maybe, who's to say? Uh, Didn't matter. They were married. She had put up with a lot. He could do this for her. Negrai said that this was an obvious trap set forth by his other wives. No, he wasn't doing it. That was final. This was the final straw for Hamal, though. Like she said, she had put up with a lot. A swim in a spring wasn't too much to ask for her husband. The couple began to go colder and colder, more and more distant, until one day, Negrai threw up his hands Fine, he was only here for her anyway. If this is what it took to show her that he was the real deal, he would do it. But he was warning her. If he went in that spring, he might not come out. We'll see what awaits them at the spring, but that will be right after this. When I think of a spring, I think of like a rock water fountain, but this was more of a wide, dark pool deep in the forest. She said that the person should get in the pool and if he sank, then he was not a sweeper, Himal explained. Negri rolled his eyes. Again, just going to say it, this was a trap. He stripped down and dipped a toe in the pool and was immediately proven correct. Ropes shot out from beneath the water and wrapped around his ankle. See? Negrae said. He struggled against the ropes. Help him? Himal said, well... Negrae said, well, what? Himal said he hadn't really done the trial yet, had he? Negrae said she could not be serious, but she was. It was an obvious trap the whole time, but the princess was so obsessed with cast that even with incontrovertible evidence right before her that the prince was being dragged down into the watery darkness, she still wanted to make sure that he was of the same cast before she helped him out. More ropes snaked their way around Nagrai's knees, waist, and arms. They pulled the hands behind his back and slowly dragged him in the spring. Help me now, please! Nagrai screamed out as his head went under. At that moment, the princess decided that that was enough. That proved it. He submerged. She found Nagrai's head of hair and pulled. It's literally adding injury to insult. When the princess's hand came up, not with Nagrai, but with a clump of his hair, she could only watch as he drifted farther and farther into the darkness. Himal missed her husband. She walked the palace alone. She tried to find hobbies like giving to the poor. She woke up every day, lamenting that he wasn't next to her. She fell asleep each night with a tear in her eye. If only she hadn't forced him into that ordeal. For companionship, she would go out among the people. The glass seller and the sweeper weren't there anymore. They had gotten what they wanted. She was left alone. She set up a stand on the side of the road. And gave alms in the name of Negrai. One morning, a beggar and his daughter approached. Himal rummaged in her pouch for some coins, but they held out something to her. She was Himal, right? The princess? This came, quote, in the name of foolish Himal. With that, they had her full attention. Where did they get this coin? It happened a few nights before, out in the wilderness. The man and his daughter were camping by a spring when, hearing a noise bubbling in the depths, they hid. From the bushes, they watched an army of courtiers come out, bringing tables, chairs, food, and drink. When everything was set, the king himself strode from the pool with several women by his side. After the feast, he lingered, alone, out in the forest, and called out, saying, "'Is there any poor person out there?' The dad and daughter knew the jig was up and emerged. Hi, they were watching all the fancy snake people eat, which was really fun when you're starving. The snake king gave them a plate of food, an alms in the name of foolish Himal, and he, too, went into the spring. Himal trembled. Could the old man and his daughter show Himal where the snake king had emerged from the fountain? It was him. It had been almost a year since he was pulled under at the well. Now, he stood out there in the forest, in his full regalia, just like he had on their wedding day. The father and daughter made her wait, until he did his customary call out into the forest. For any poor people, which, I know is to give them money and a plate of food, but it still sounds just weird. Himal rushed from the forest and flew into her husband's arms. She was so sorry. Himal said she never should have made him complete the trial. It didn't matter what caste he was in. She just wanted him back. He looked down at her. Who are you? She staggered back. What? He didn't know who she was? Should I? The king, Nagrai, asked. He asked her if she wanted alms. About the same time as the last snakes disappeared down into the spring, Hamal began weeping. He was lost forever then. Hamal, come on, Negri said. Of course I remember you. Hamal dried her eyes. What, he did? He nodded, yeah. He just couldn't let on that she was Hamal around the other snakes. It was super dangerous for her here. If his snake wives learned that she was nearby, look, they had lowered their guard enough by now, A month he would come to see her in the palace in a month. He forgave her, but she couldn't be here. She held onto his arm. No, she had lost him once before. She wasn't leaving his side again. He said that wasn't an option. If his serpent wives discovered her, they would literally murder her. all shrugged. Well then, he would just have to find a way to keep her with him, but in a way that wouldn't be discovered by the serpent wives. In the end, he figured it out he would turn her into a pebble. He would keep the very small rock in his pocket, as most adults do, and his wives wouldn't suspect a thing. What's with the pebble? The wife who had been posing as a witch back in the city said to the serpent king, Negri. He said, what did she mean, what was with the pebble? It was just something he was trying out. Like, he was the pebble guy. You know, this was his thing now. He had He had pebbles. Rock collecting? Minerals, you know, it's, it's different, Nagrai said. The wife groaned, okay, they're not going to go through this. She was just going to say it. He walked in with this stone, and they all smelled human. He had never collected rocks before. Did he have something he wanted to tell them? Their eyes flashed yellow. Nagrai understood. He said he would come clean under one condition. They wouldn't harm her. The serpent wives said, sure, absolutely, deal. Nagrai took the pebble from his pocket, set it down on the floor, and waved his hand. All the wives looked on the human princess with disdain. All righty, Hamal, wives, wives, himal, also a wife. Nice of you all to meet when you're not plotting against me. I'll just see her up to the service world. A tail coiled around Nagrai's arm. Oh, no, no, he wasn't. Himal wasn't going anywhere. They only promised not to harm her, not to let her leave. She would stay there and work for them, Cinderella style, like super degrading. She would be cleaning the floor and they'd walk by and spill some milk like, oops, you know, that sort of stuff. The prince hung his head. He had made a grave mistake bringing Himal here. The only thing? Himal didn't agree. She sat there with steely resolve she would serve these women, and when the time came, she would take back her life. We'll see the princess fight back against her captors, but that will, once again, be right after this. It couldn't really be this easy, Himal thought to herself as she hit the jugs of milk. It had been a challenging month. Himal slept on the floor by the fire, and she had to be ready to serve the serpent wives and their many, many babies at a moment's notice. Her main job was milking, milking the cows outside, bringing in the milk, boiling it, waiting for it to cool, and then hitting the sides of the jugs, so that like 100 snake babies could climb on in and drink. Then she had to scrub out the jars, wash them, and get ready for the following day. The serpent wives thought that living a life in servitude, having to take care of your husband's snake babies with other snake women, would be torture for Hamal, but they didn't know Hamal. One morning, Hamal went through everything like usual. She gathered the jars, milked the cows, brought the milk in, boiled it, but this time, she didn't wait for it to cool. She had waited until later that day, when the baby snakes would be hungry when they would rush ahead and dive in without stopping to check the milk. And she was right. She hit the side of the boiling hot milk jugs with the spoon, and the little snakes came pouring in from all over the house. They dove right into the pot and boiled alive. The serpent wives came in. When the last of their babies stopped screaming in the boiling milk, they slithered up and saw the jars of white milk were filled with hundreds of curled, Floating forms. Their children. They were dead. They were all dead. Himal smirked. That's what they got. They wanted to keep her captive as a servant. She destroyed their children. That's what happened when they messed with her. That's... But Hamal didn't quite grasp the game she was playing. These women, the serpent wives, were already looking for a reason to kill Himal. And she more than gave them one. They hissed and started closing in around Himal. Himal wielded her spoon, telling them to stay back. She would scream. Negri would come for her. The woman said, oh yeah. She would scream. They would make sure of it. The snakes reared and lunged, covering all in venomous bites. I won't pretend to understand the snake legal system, though I can imagine humans have the same level of protection under their law that they have under our law. So the Serpent's Wives' killing of Hamal was met with, at best, a shrug of indifference on behalf of the wider snake population. Nagrai, though, was beside himself with grief. No one much cared what he did with the body. The Serpent Wives didn't care. She was dead, so they got what they wanted. He could mourn all he wanted. In fact... That was the point. He had shamed them all by leaving for so long and going into the human world and taking one of them for a bride. They wanted him to suffer. The snake king, Negrai, ascended the spring alone. It was only fitting that Hamal should rest in her home. So Negrai climbed the foothill of a mountain and made a small bed for Hamal there. He laid her on the soft bed of leaves and sticks and just left her to decompose in the open air. It's what she would have wanted. Probably. But, a few days later, a holy man came wandering through the valley and spotted the bed, far up on high. He had been through this valley hundreds of times. He had never seen a bed there before. Who sleeps on the top of a mountain? Probably because it was destiny, and also mainly because he didn't have anything better to do. He was a hermit in the Middle Ages. He climbed the mountain. "'Dad, uh, what's that?' the holy man's son asked him later on that evening. "'It's a dead girl,' the holy man grumbled. The son said, "'No, yeah, he understood that. It was obvious from the, you know, corpse. He just wanted to know why?' "'Then ask me that next time,' the hermit finished dragging her into the room. "'Okay, uh, why? Why do you have the corpse of a dead girl?' The dad said, oh my gosh, he found her on the mountain and, quote, his soul had pity for the young, fair corpse. It's weird that the attractiveness of the corpse is the first place you go, the son said. The father ignored him, laid him all's corpse on the bed, and then got on his knees. What are you doing now? The son asked. I was praying if you would stop interrupting me. The hermit barked. The son stepped aside and let his father finish the prayers. Then, to the surprise of the son and the resigned expectation of the father, Himal gasped. Her chest rose steadily. She's alive. The son rushed to feel her arm. It was already warming up. How did his dad do that? His dad said he didn't do it. The gods did. Wait, you just prayed and the gods brought her back to life? The hermit said they're gods, aren't they? Why not, right? The son thought, Wow, maybe you should start being more religious or something. That was amazing. You know what was also amazing? The son looked at the girl. Her. Oh, I say she's a pretty young corpse, and you're all like, Dad, that's gross, but you go all googly-eyed on her as soon as she's breathing? Please, the dad shook his head. Dad, did you hear the, the sentence? Corpse. It's a key word there. Corpse. Days passed, and even though Himal was alive, she was still recovering from several venomous snake bites. She was comatose. And day in and day out, the son of the hermit took care of her and also hoped to marry her. He'd wait a little while after she woke up to spring that on her. Like 15, 20 minutes. He was classy like that. But her first and only husband, Negri, was searching for her when he found that she wasn't gracefully decomposing on top of the mountain like he thought she would. He began searching for her day and night. He went to the villages, asked about any young woman who had been brought down from the mountains and buried, but no one knew anything. So he continued on. One night, on Nagrai's last stop in the region, he was talking with a grumpy hermit who, no, hadn't seen any beautiful young corpses and recently learned that it was bad to refer to them as such. Good day, sir. He slammed the door in Nagrai's face. Nagrai thought, that was strange. That cagey old man was the first lead he had in days, though. He decided to creep on around to the window, and there. He saw her. She was on the bed, and some young man was tending to her. But why would you tend to a corpse? (gasps) Negri gasped. Her chest was rising. She was breathing. The young man gave her some liquid from a towel he had soaked in some water and wine. She drank from deep in her sleep. She was alive. Negrae thanked the gods and transformed. Somewhere, deep in the darkness, he spoke to her. Himal was floating, unmoored. She could hear voices all around her. She knew she had returned, but she couldn't move. Then she heard something coil around her bedpost, She knew it was him. Don't worry, my love. I am here, Nagrai said. The first bit of sensation her body had allowed since those terrible serpent wives attacked her was the feeling of Nagrai's triangular head, nuzzling her shoulder. She tried with all of her strength, and she managed to do it. She opened her eyes. He heard her and rose to meet her. She was looking into the snake eyes of her beloved. She was safe. She was home. The following morning, Himal actually managed to open her eyes. And the house was in an uproar. The son noticed her flickering eyelids and ran to get his dad, the hermit. And together they rejoiced that the girl who had once been dead was now alive. Himal looked to the bedpost, it was empty. She tried to speak, and the son ran to get her water. After a few minutes, she pointed to the bedpost. Serpent, she managed. The son was wide-eyed. Oh, so she knew. He thought she was still asleep. Him shook her head. Knew what? Uh, only that I saved your life, the son said, and dug around in his sack. He brought out the corpse of the serpent. Himal looked at the body of her husband, dangling there in that gloating man's hand. She barely heard him as he said he came in to chuck on her in the night and found a venomous serpent quilled around her bedpost, sleeping. No match for the sun's axe, though. Chop that thing to pieces. You wouldn't be waking up again. Are you sure? The hermit asked. It was my husband and it is our custom. Do it, Himal said. Laying down on the wood next to the pieces of the snake corpse, the hermit shook his head and lowered the torch. As she burned, Himal wept and cried out. The first time she died, it was while being attacked. Now she was dying to be with him. Why are you crying? The son asked his father, the hermit. The hermit said it was just so sad. They were young and in love. It was a tragedy. Yeah, but it was like a week ago, and I was actually in love with her, so I feel like I should be more torn up about it than you anyway, the son said. The father wailed again before the two piles of ashes. Tragedy! Then he glanced up to a nearby tree. Coast was clear. He pulled his son down to him. See those two birds, he whispered. The son... Nodded, yeah. Father whispered that those were the gods Shiva and Parvati. Could the hermit's son be cool about stuff for like once in his life? Oh, then the father noticed the birds were turning back. Ah, tragedy. The birds looked on the ashes and the piles began to stir. As the birds flapped off toward the heavens, the ashes took form. Soon, Himal and Nagrai were standing before the hermit, hand in hand. They were alive, and together, again. They built a small house by the spring there, in the forest, unknown to the humans and the serpents alike. There, they grew old together, in peace, happiness, and love. And also, they had an elderly hermit roommate, who moved in with them, despite having a place of his own nearby. Not sure why, but when someone brings you back from the dead twice, it's kind of hard to tell him he can't crash on your couch. In Hinduism, a Naga is a half-human, half-cobra, who can change shape at will. They live in an underground kingdom, which we saw today, and they were relegated there when they became too populous on Earth. According to one source, they're allowed to bite anyone evil or anyone destined to die prematurely. Though I think if you get bitten by a magical cobra monster, you're pretty much slated to die prematurely. But that prophecy seems kind of self-fulfilling. I like this story because I was never really sure where it was going to go. And I... Do wish that they had left it a tragedy at the end, I thought it really worked that way, but it is nice to have a happy ending, where the couple could live out their lives in peace, away from the pressures and baggage of the past, and also with a hermit roommate that the story felt compelled to add. If you'd like to support the show, there's still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a dill with it bath soak, a bath salt that smells like pickles, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that... Won't mean you have to take another bath because you smell like pickles. For more info on the membership, check out mythpodcast.com/slash membership. The creature this week is the Jaculus from Greek and Roman mythology. Now, I hate snakes. Not cool, grizzled hate like Indiana Jones, but a shameful, run-in-terror hate. With the Jaculus, you don't need to worry about snakes from the ground. I should rephrase that. You don't need to only worry about snakes from the ground. They can also fly through the air and javelin you in the throat. The Jaculus is a small snake with wings, or sometimes without wings, that aims for the jugular. The ancient writers were pretty quick to point out that the snake does not, in fact, kill with venom, which, yes. When someone gets a javelin through the neck, it's safe to say that that's what got them. Apparently, while Roman forces were marching through the deserts of Libya, one jaculus flung itself at a Roman soldier, and all it left was a hole through that soldier's temple. So yeah, once again, not a doctor. Pretty obvious that the jaculus doesn't kill by venom. They do have a form of toxin, kind of. That, like I said, they aren't venomous. But if they want to give you a hug and like coil around your arm, which they apparently did to a peasant in Zurich, even if they don't bite you, they will leave it putrefying. Apparently, this person had to have the black blood drained from their arm for the rest of their life. There's a variation out there from Madagascar that tosses some leaves out to gauge the wind and all that, and after it's satisfied, flies with so much force, it can, quote, break a metal pot. You know, the metal pots we all wear around our necks and heads. Unfortunately, this variation doesn't last long. It flies so fast that it kills itself. So if you're wondering why we don't see any more of those these days, there you go. that's it for this week myths and legends is by jason and carissa weiser our theme song is by broke for free and the creature of the week music is by steve Combs. there are links to even more of the music we used in the show notes thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time